0: ReachMD XM157 now presents this month's special series, Exploring Heart Health.
1: How do patients undergoing a coronary artery bypass graft benefit from cerebral oximetry monitoring? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. James Slater, Attending surgeon in the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at Morristown Memorial Hospital and Overlook Hospital, and in private practice at Mid Atlantic Surgical Associates in Morristown, New Jersey. Welcome, Dr. Slater. Thanks, Mark. Today we are discussing cerebral oximetry. Dr. Slater, all physicians know what pulse oximetry is. What exactly is cerebral oximetry?
0: Cerebral oximetry makes use of the same near-infrared spectroscopy that is used in pulse oximetry to measure oxygen in the blood. In the case of pulse oximetry, the oximeter is put on the finger, and oxygen saturation is easily measured in the patient's blood. In the case of cerebral oximetry, the sensors are placed on the patient's forehead, and we're actually able to measure oxygen consumption of the brain, or oxygen delivery and then consumption of the brain.
1: Why is that important?
0: Before focusing in on the technology, I'd like to get to the broader stage. In the 1970s, heart surgery was about getting patients to survive the operation itself. In the 1980s and 90s, as we accomplished those goals, heart surgery became about decreasing the risks of cardiac surgery, including decreasing risk of mortality, decreasing risk of stroke. Having accomplished those goals pretty well, we're now focusing on making this operation as safe as possible and having the least possible impact on a patient's quality of life. One aspect of cardiac surgery, popular in the literature for a number of years now to discuss, is the impact on cognitive decline. That is, patients don't concentrate quite as well as they did after cardiac surgery than they did before. One of the mechanisms that we think may be involved in this is delivery of subtle amounts of oxygen to the brain during these major procedures, such as heart surgery. An instrument that now is able to measure oxygen delivery and consumption of the brain during heart surgery in a non-invasive way is the cerebral oximeter that you're asking about.
1: Now, how does that measure the oxygen exactly?
0: Most people think that the skull is opaque and light won't shine through it. But in fact, if you take the human skull and you put a flashlight, it transilluminates very nicely. So it's very easy to shine a light through the skull and then read what comes back. And using the same spectroscopy that's used for pulse oximetry, you can make a calculation as how much oxygen is being delivered to the brain during heart surgery.
1: Now, is this done exclusively when someone is on cardiopulmonary bypass?
0: No, it really can be applied to any operation because I'm a heart surgeon. That's the way we use it. But we do use it in non-bypass cases, also known as off-pump coronary artery bypass grafting, as well as on.
1: Well, Dr. Slater, if someone during an operation has normal vital signs, why wouldn't the pulse oximetry value of the oxygen saturation be a good reflection of what's going on in the brain?
0: Well, what we find is that it's not all about blood pressure. It can be about flow of blood to the brain, so you can have normal blood pressure at the expense of flow. We find that there's different chemical compositions that affect how much oxygen delivered to the brain. In the past, when we were doing bypass surgery, we would keep the patient's PCO2 in the normal range. In fact, we find if we allow that value to ride a little bit higher, blood gives off oxygen more easily, and we're delivering more oxygen to the brain. So, this device really has changed the way we practice in our institution.
1: So what do you do if the levels go down?
0: The anesthesiologist and the perfusionist working together have an algorithm that they'll employ to try to make that number come back up again. First, they'll try to increase the blood pressure. Next, they'll increase the flow. They may decide to make the patient go to sleep a little bit more by giving them more anesthetics. They'll check the PCO2 to make sure it's at the range that they want. And they'll also ask the surgeons from time to time to check their cannulas, which are the tubes that allow blood to flow to and from the heart-lung machine to make sure that those flows are optimized As well.
1: Is this type of discrepancy between pulse oximetry levels and cerebral oximetry seen usually in cardiac surgery, or do you really see it in other surgeries as well?
0: I can't speak directly to the other surgeries because I do mostly cardiac surgery, but I can tell you the device is being more and more widely applied to other surgeries.
1: Is this thought to be one of the reasons why? there have been cognitive changes in patients postoperatively.
0: Well, here at Morristown, we actually approached this with a prospective randomized trial. And in fact, we did see that this device does predict patients at risk for cognitive decline. That is, patients who had more desaturation did in fact have a higher increase in cognitive decline after surgery. Uh, in addition, we found that this cognitive decline also led to longer lengths of stay.
1: If you have just joined us, you are listening to Reach ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and we are speaking with Dr. James Slater, attending surgeon in the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at Morristown Memorial Hospital and Overlook Hospital and in private practice at Mid-Atlantic Surgical Associates in Morristown, New Jersey. Today, we are discussing cerebral oximetry. Dr. Slater, when you notice that the cerebral oximetry levels are down and the anesthesiologist makes the appropriate changes, are those changes effective?
0: Typically, they are effective.
1: And how quickly are those changes made?
0: Really, second to second and minute to minute.
1: Why has this become such an interesting aspect of your practice?
0: Again, we're trying to make this operation as tolerable as it can be to individuals. The real impact of cognitive decline, it's something that flew below the radar screen for a long, long time. But it's, all of us have experienced patients who come back and they look well, they have good color, they're breathing well. And when you ask them how they're doing, they tell you, I'm not doing so well. I can't do the things that I used to do. And you say, well, what do you mean? And they'll say, I used to be able to do the crossword puzzle without any difficulty at all, but I can't do it as well as I could, or it takes me a lot longer. This is real impact in patients' quality of life. And if we can come up with ways to make our operation have less impact or or be more safe for them, it's appreciated by our patients.
1: How do you differentiate between anecdotes and actually recognizing that there's a pattern.
0: It's extremely difficult. Uh, Any studies that are done with neurologic testing before and after surgery are always prone to criticism that not the right battery of tests were used or there's a learning component to each individual. So it is really very difficult. We worked very hard in the study that we did to use accepted guidelines in the tests that we chose uh, and in the patients who were doing them. One of the motivations... That we had for doing the study was because of that very question it's usually anecdotal and it 's another salesman who's pushing another product on you and we said let's let's really take a look hard look at this, and the best way you can get at these questions is with a prospective randomized trial
1: Well, how did you separate out relative cerebral hypoxia? as the single variable, as opposed to all the other variables that occur during general anesthesia and during the operative and perioperative time that could account for some cognitive dysfunction.
0: In our study, all of that washes out because you're able to control for it statistically because it is a randomized population. The randomization between the two populations was really quite pure with no statistical differences between them for every preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative characteristic that you could ask me. So that allows us to focus statistically just on the oximetry score is the differential between the two patients.
1: In your studies, have you seen an actual statistically significant improvement in cognitive function? Yes. Now, how common would you say percentage-wise in your types of operations that you do as a cardiothoracic surgeon, do you see times when you have to increase the cerebral oxygenation?
0: Between 30 and 50 percent of the time. It is that high? Yes. Why is that? Because there are many things that we do that impact how much blood is delivered to the brain during the course of an operation.
1: Exclusive of the cardiopulmonary bypass or?
0: Inclusive of including blood pressure, PCO2 level, uh, temperature as well has a major effect.
1: What do your colleagues across the country think about measuring cerebral oximetry?
0: I think it's coming on slowly. The problem that we're trying to eradicate or at least treat is a subtle and difficult problem to get a handle on. And for that reason, a fix for a subtle problem is going to gain popularity slowly.
1: Being the devil's advocate, the cardiac surgeons who do not currently use cerebral oximetry, what do they say about when you discuss about cognitive dysfunction and the reasons for cognitive dysfunction in cardiac surgery?
0: I think I'm very sympathetic to that point of view because As a surgeon and as physicians, we're often approached by industry with yet another device or monitoring device that's going to provide this benefit to our patients or that benefit to our patients, and the proof really isn't there. And so and if it only costs $100 or $200, it falls into the category of can't hurt, might help. But if you fill your operating room with equipment that can't hurt, might help, you've made your your operation very expensive indeed and haven't necessarily given any real benefit to your patient. So I think that it warrants being somewhat skeptical about these technologies as to whether they do really help or not. And that's why we felt it was just so important to study this.
1: I'm kind of curious in terms of the structure of your study. How could you ethically have a double-blind, randomized prospective study? Obviously, if someone has cerebral hypoxia. You can't just ignore it. You can't have one patient not be treated and one patient be treated. How did you do this?
0: Uh, It was an interesting design of the study. All patients were monitored with the monitor, Half of the patients, the control, I referred to as the control group, those scores were not displayed. The screen was blank. So that the, the actual level of desaturation was not known to the operating staff as if the instrument wasn't there, which would be in the, as it would be for the great majority of cases. For the study group, the monitor was not only in place, but the screen was visible to the operating room staff, and therefore we could react to the numbers.
1: Did you have any problems with some of the patients consenting? Because if I was a patient and I said, if you're going to measure my cerebral uh, oxygen saturation. If it goes down, I want you to treat me.
0: It wasn't known to them. And because of the science behind this prior to the study, we thought it wasn't really there or it wasn't as strong as it might be. Patients didn't have a problem consenting.
1: And Dr. Slater, finally, what do you think is the future for measuring cerebral oximetry, both in your field in cardiac surgery and in other fields of surgery?
0: We find that this is an easy thing to do, it's an easy thing to treat, and we think that the more we're looking at it, the more benefit that it has. So I think it is going to enjoy a a future.
1: In your hospital, have any other departments utilized this, meaning divisions of the Department of Surgery, such as general surgery, orthopedic surgery, urologic surgery?
0: It turns out that pediatric surgeons are finding this quite useful, and not necessarily using just on the head, they're able to measure oxygenation to the splanchnic bed, or to basically the body cavity, as a useful indicator that they're actually perfusing small children and i believe it's gaining acceptance in those areas as well
1: i want to thank dr james slater who has been our guest we have been discussing cerebral oximetry i'm dr mark nolan hill and you have been listening to the clinicians Roundtable on reach md the channel for medical professionals for comments and questions please send your email to xm at reachmd.com.
0: Thank you for listening to this month's special series, Exploring
1: Heart Health, on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.